This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages of Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Verse 1. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and aspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. This is God's word. Before we begin uh, our series on Esther, um, just to say a little bit more about the Easter outreach program. It's a combination of 30 or more churches. We're hoping 
I think it's going to double every year as we go. Um, this is a very small program that was started by a local church in Philadelphia, a partner of ours, that really grew into something really special. And we get to take part in this every year. We will be providing meals for 3,500 families. That could be up to 10,000 meals. And we'll be gathering pretty much the week of Easter to pack meals uh, and to deliver these meals throughout the city. And so if you're interested in being a part of this, we know a number of people, about two dozen people have signed up from our church already. But if you're interested in being part of this, you could be a meal packer, you could be a, a meal deliverer. Um, it's going to need a driver and then somebody to really jump out of the car, deliver the meal, and then come back. We're not trying to proselytize our church. We're not trying to do anything of that sort. Certainly, if people are interested in finding out more, um, you can give them information. But really, the main, the main initiative is to provide meals uh, for Easter weekend. And that's really the goal, uh, to bring families together so that they can enjoy a meal together on a special weekend for the Christian church. Um, if you're interested, Melissa Chu, she'll be our coordinator and director. It's a huge effort. We have hotlines set up for the East Falls area. We're going to be partnering with the East Falls Community and Development Center. Um, we're going to uh, be partnering with uh, uh, people known as the East Falls bloggers to get the word out so that people can call this hotline, order a meal so that we can deliver these things to them. Melissa Chu will be standing in the back of the sanctuary at the end of worship as, uh, just to collect names and information, just small information, brief information from you if you're interested in being a part of this effort. We really appreciate it. It's going to be an exciting thing. We hope to do this every year. Next year, we hope to be a depot for the entire area of East Falls, either next year or the year after. We're trying to really raise the awareness for the East Falls area. So if you're interested in being part of it, again, look for Melissa Chu. She'll be standing in the back uh, with a sign-up sheet for you. Now, uh, as part of the Lenten season, uh, we take a break from our usual series, and we go into uh, just a brief series just through this Lenten period into Easter. Lenten really um, brings up the notion of spring and life. And so we wanted to choose a book that was going to kind of walk through and bring us the virtues of new life in Christ. And the book of Esther is great. Esther, who is Esther? Esther is a Jewish woman who rises to the position of queen of the most powerful empire in the world to date. And I like the book of Esther uh, for really two reasons. One, it's a countercultural uh, uh, lessons because in Esther's day, women, they lived without any rights. It was a patriarchal, male-dominated society. Esther, a woman like Esther would have no rights. And yet, Esther, the weaker person, she demonstrates wisdom. She demonstrates strength. She's really the prototypical feminist in a male-dominated empire. So I really like this book. The second, the second reason why I like this book is because it answers a very important question for all of us, and it flows right into Lent, into what I like to do in the spring every year, to answer the question, how do you live as a Christian with money and power and influence in a society that's dominated by people who do not share your values? Esther answers that question. How do you live as a Christian with wealth and power and influence in a society that's dominated by people who do not share your values? And so we're going to really begin, I'm going to give you a brief background on the book of Esther, and then we're going to go into three points, lessons on the sovereignty of God, lessons on our worldly obsession with beauty and power and wealth and influence, and then lastly, how do you break free? How do you break free of that obsession 
Okay, so a background and then lessons on the sovereignty of God, foundational lessons on our obsession with beauty and wealth and power, and then how do you get free? How do you get free from that obsession? First, we're going to go into a brief uh, background of Esther. King Xerxes, incidentally, uh, scholars say is the same Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, that's the same king. Um, King Xerxes... In Esther chapter 1, you see this in the first nine verses of Esther chapter 1, he holds a 180-day, I guess, party. It's a party that lasts 180 days. 180 days to demonstrate how rich and powerful he is. It takes 180 days to display everything that he's got. Now, that's a lot of wealth. A seven-day banquet after that party. But what he's doing, he's flaunting his wealth and his power. And, and, and in, his, in his chauvinistic pride, his mis, this misogynist culture, in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 1, Xerxes boasts about his wife's beauty, how beautiful his wife is. And basically what he wants to do is he wants to put her on display to show her off in front of thousands of men who've been drinking for days and days. And so in verse 12, Vashti, Queen Vashti, declines that. Go figure. She declines it. His wife, Queen Vashti, disgraces him. It's an incredibly brave move for a woman in her day. And though, because, you know, the role of the queen was to uphold social values of his day, social norms. And so you see in verses 13 to 18, she, you know, what she does is considered, it's a, it's a cardinal sin in this, in this society. And so because she goes against the mores, in verses 19 to 22, she's deposed as queen. She's exiled. She's never allowed to see, be in the presence of the king again. And that brings us really to chapter 2. In verses 1 to 2 of chapter 2, uh, the cabinet of the king decide to hold a pageant throughout the empire. I mean, it's going to be a real Miss Universe because they're going to take the most beautiful young women, virgins, throughout the empire, all the conquered lands of the Persians, and they're going to bring about and put on a pageant to choose one woman who's going to become the queen. And so they're going to take women from all over the empire. These women really are taken. And every one of them gets to spend one night with the king. Before that, they have to go through all these beauty treatments and a lot of training before they do that. And scholars say that four things can happen to you. One of four things can happen to you if you're one of these women who are brought into the king's harem. One... The king may never see you again. And because you've already slept with the king, you're pretty much banished to some, part, some remote part of the empire. And really at the young, a young teenage, in your teenage years, you're never allowed to marry, really never allowed to associate with people, and you're pretty much in exile as a part of the king's kingdom and as part of his harem. Second, the uh, second thing that can happen to you is you can become one of his concubines, meaning that the king will frequently or time to time visit you um, or thirdly, if he really likes you, you can become one of his wives, which means you will bear one of his children. But if he really shows you favor, you can become queen. And Esther, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, we learn Esther is part of, the, of this uh, exiled, disfranchised people, the Jews. She becomes queen among possibly, some scholars say, thousands of candidates. And she becomes a queen in a in society that's dominated by people and values that are completely different than hers. 
This little orphan Jewish girl becomes the queen of the greatest empire in the face of the earth to date. So we're going to go to three quick lessons again. One, the sovereignty of God. Two, our obsession with beauty and wealth and power. And lastly, how do we become free of those idols? First, uh, foundational lessons on the sovereignty of God, the kingly authority of God. The author, the author of the book of Esther writes in a very particular way. We're, I'm not sure if you noticed it here in chapter 2, but he doesn't mention God anywhere. In fact, nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not only not discussed, but there's no reference to God at all. There's no miracles. You don't see any dreams. You don't see any visions. There are no teachings. There are no proverbs from God. There's no prophesying. There's no prayer. There's no prayer. There's no, there's allusions to prayer. There's no Bible study. There's no mention of God, not at all. In fact, the author intentionally avoids talking about God, mentioning God. Everything that you see, all that you see from the beginning is exploitation, misogyny, polygamy, debauchery, chauvinism, and God seems completely silent. God seems completely absent. Everything that you see, all that you see is mundane hardship, the plight of the lower class, the poor people, the suffering. And what eventually emerges, actually, as you read in the book of Esther, is that a group of powerful forces rise up and they seek to destroy all of Esther's people. But God is absent. God is silent, seemingly silent. And yet, from time, by the time you get to the end of this book, there's a string of circumstances, a string of coincidences. If they hadn't all happened, there would have been genocide. But because it happened, because all these horrible things happened, everyone gets saved. And so the first lesson, the foundational or fundamental lesson on the sovereignty of God, the authoritative power of God is God is present even when he seems absent, especially when he seems absent. Look at the narrative of Esther. If the king didn't hold this party, this 100-day-long party, if the king hadn't made these boasts, these misogynistic boasts about his wife, Vashti would have remained queen. Everything in this text, everything in the entire book of Esther hinges on Esther becoming queen. If Vashti didn't reject the king, right, there'd be no pageant. If Esther wasn't born pretty, if she wasn't born beautiful, she wouldn't have been chosen for the pageant. If Mordecai, who was overseeing Esther, hadn't overheard this assassination plot to kill the king, if Haggai had not shown favor to Esther, if the king had not been attracted to Esther, you see, all these things, one coincidence after another, one string of circumstances after another, amidst just ordinary suffering, mundane hardship, mundane happenings. Another way of saying that is this. No one looks at Xerxes. No one looks at his chauvinistic pride, him getting drunk with all of his buddies all the time. No one looks at the queen's defiance. No one, look at, no one looks at Esther's pride. No one looks at any of these things and says, oh, absolutely, I see it. God is at work. No one, no one says that. And that brings us to the second lesson. If you look at the misogyny, if you look at the chauvinism, if you look at the drunkenness, God is at work. God works through broken situations. God works through broken people. God is present in these broken situations, in these circumstances. God is, work at, God is at work at broken cultures. There's someone in the room right now saying, I'm looking at my life, I'm thinking about my life, and I don't see anything good that can come from my current experience. And you're wrong. If you look at the book of Esther, 
polygamy, genocide, conspiracy, racial brokenness. And yet, because of the polygamy and genocide and conspiracy and racial brokenness, through the polygamy and the genocide and the conspiracy and the racial brokenness, God's people are saved. God's people are redeemed. Around uh, 37 years ago this past week, um, my father was murdered. Now, I don't normally like to share about my life up at the pulpit, mainly because the one thing that people tend to remember, you know, after you preach this, you know, you spend a lot of time putting together a sermon, and then you share this little tidbit about your life. The one thing that people tend to remember when they walk away is what? You know, that person's life, the, the preacher's life. And, I, you know, to avoid these sermons becoming about me, but I really have to share this today. Around 37 years ago um, this week, um, my father was murdered. Now, why was he murdered? He, was a, he graduated from a uh, university in Korea as an engineer, and he came to the, United, to, to the United States in the 70s, big immigration boom in the 70s. Um, and really, to make ends meet, he settled in Philadelphia. He was recruited as an engineer here in Philadelphia and settled here um, to, to kind of make ends meet in the beginning. He opened up a small business out near Temple University. <clears throat> he was mugged. Later on, he was murdered. Long story, mugged, later on murdered. I was actually there when, he, when we got mugged. Um, but because my father was murdered, um, with a five-year-old and a newborn, my mother remained in the United States. She was originally, we were planning to go back to Korea, and she was going to resume her career as a nursing professor. And... Um, she wanted to rape, but, you know, a newborn here, grew up here already five years in. She decided to remain in the States. We stayed in the Philadelphia area. Lots of hardship, financial hardship, um, lots of fears. Eventually, I grew up, I went to Brandeis University, and uh, that's in Boston. And at Brandeis, I really grew into my faith as a Christian. And it was my life in Boston that took me to discover the PCA, the denomination that this church is in and really uh, plugged into my first church planting experience ever. I caught the bug there. I really enjoyed that experience. Now, why did I go to Brandeis? Well, I went to Brandeis because in the 1940s, Albert Einstein, um, who defected to the United States, Albert Einstein, he wanted to establish a school to give Jewish students equal opportunities. Why? Because there was a man named Hitler running through Europe. World War II was going on. And anti-Semitism was at its peak. Now, why Hitler? Well, because of World War I. And Germany was pretty much in utter financial uh, and economic collapse. So if you think about it, on one hand, World War I, World War II, Hitler, Brandeis University's founding, and my father's murder led to the founding of Metro Presbyterian Church. If none of those things happened, if none of those things happened, most likely, not a single member of my family would have been believers. I wouldn't have had a sister, for that matter. There'd be no metro. I'd be some dude back in Korea. That's what I'd be. Now, does that answer the question as to why my father had to die? I don't know. Right? Why my mother had to stay? Why I had to be in Boston? No. But because of the brokenness, through the brokenness, through the death, through the hardships, through the financial troubles, through the suffering, my family was redeemed and became Christians. God is at work. God is at work. Even though he seems hidden, he's at work through broken situations. 
And if there's anybody in this room who's thinking, I don't know how there could be any good that can come from this. Listen, just because you can't see the good, does that mean there's no good? Does Does that mean there can't be any good? Is that good logic? That's terrible logic. God is at work. That means that there is a God that is more powerful. If there's a God that is more powerful, more powerful than you could ever know, to stop all of your suffering, surely he would have the wisdom. Possible. It's plausible that he would have the wisdom that goes beyond your own perspective. So, foundational lessons on the sovereignty of God. Now, the second thing we see here is our obsession with worldly beauty, worldly influence, worldly power. The world is obsessed with appearances and looks and wealth and power. If you look at the backdrop of the entire book, in chapter 1, you have this king. The king is the, representat- the representative, a foundational representative of his entire country. This king is in the midst of war. And what does he do? He has a party. He's flaunting his wealth and his power. He holds this party that lasts 100 days and then a banquet that goes seven days longer after that. He shows off everything he owns, all of his wealth, all of his excesses, all of his treasure. It takes 180 days to display all of that. And amidst all these drunken men, he summons the queen and Vashti. Vashti's the one who's disgusted. Vashti's the one who rejects him. But look at chapter 2. Esther completely buys into these values. She's completely swept away. If you look at chapter 2, verse 8, she joins the king's harem, and it starts with this makeover process. And then in verse 9, what happens? She changes her diet. She changes her look. She changes her diet. Pretty soon, she's working. She's laboring. She's working to please Haggai, who's uh, the eunuch boss. And soon after, in verse 9, she rises. She gains his favor, and she rises pretty much to, to the best position among the women, She has other servants associated with her. Pretty much uh, she rises to a position where she's the head of her own department, so to speak. Eventually, she's immersed in makeovers. Verse 12, 12 months with oil and cosmetics. In verse 13 to 14, she gets to spend one night with the king. Now, if you think about this, doing everything to please the king. Vashti is an irreligious woman. She disgraces the king, goes against the king, goes against society, goes against her culture. She's got values. She's strong. But you have Esther here in chapter 2. Esther, she's just working to become the, the king's favorite, right? She does whatever she can to please the king. Everything that she's told in verse 15. Verse 16, she becomes everyone's favorite. Soon, verse 17, the king favors the queen, the the soon-to-be queen in Esther. Now, when you read this, when you read this text, it's easy to conclude that in Persian culture, the most important thing about a man is his wealth, his power, his sexual appetite. And the most important thing about a woman in Persian culture is what? Physical beauty, sexual appeal. Although we live in a world that's much more advanced than Esther's time, the values, the values, you could say pretty much the same thing about our values today. The values of our culture today haven't changed. The heart of our culture today hasn't changed. The world still says, unless you have a pedigree, unless you have beauty, unless you have sex appeal, unless you have wealth, if you don't have these things, you are absolutely worthless. You need to go through the world's beauty treatments. You need to train. You need to shape your life up. You need to perform. You need to work hard. You need to pass hurdles. And if you do, just maybe you will be approved. 
This is an honest question to everyone. Now, I'm a pastor, and I don't want to assume a relationship with you that I may not have. So you're going to have to take this question a bit clinically, okay? Are you trying to join the world's harem today? And so you've sold out. Think about life. Have you sold out to your culture? What is the basis on which you choose your friends? What is the basis on which you choose your neighborhoods to live in? What is the basis on which you choose your careers? What is the basis on which you choose your spouse? Looking for a spouse? What's really at the heart of any of your goals? What's the author trying to say here? Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm going to kill six million people. This is how it happens. There's this desire, and it's influenced by the prevailing conditions, the context. And then there are opportunities, and you take those opportunities. And little by little, you start to feed those desires. And little by little, pretty soon, at some point, you're swept away, completely swept away. Every day, we're bombarded by voices around us that tell us how to look, what to wear, how to be, how to, how to perform, what to eat, what makes a person beautiful, what makes you worthy. Every day we're bombarded by these voices. And it, be, you know, it begins here. <clears throat> if you see this text, you see the same kind of thing. Because what's at the root of our greed? What's at the root of our snobbishness? What's at the root of jealousy or envy or pride or, or anything, any of our comparisons? So far, if you think about it, the hero of the story, the, narrator, the, the hero of this narrative is not Esther. Esther, it failed. Up until this point and through much of the book of Esther, commentators and scholars will all agree, whether you're liberal on one end of the spectrum or conservative on the other end, they will all agree across the board, Esther is a failure at this point. It's Vashti who's brave. It's Vashti who has values. Vashti is the hero so far of this story, right? In chapter 2, Esther is completely swept away by wealth and beauty and power. And it begins, in verse 10, she starts to hide her identity. That's the clue. And then the beauty treatments. And then uh, she, she disregards her culture's dietary laws. And then ultimately, she sleeps with her king, you know, because uh, before marriage, right? Huge value in her culture. And then she marries this irreligious person, because of his wealth and his power, completely sells out, loses herself. You don't see a struggle. Nowhere here in this text do you see a struggle. Completely loses herself, loses her voice. She forgets about her people. She forgets about their plight. She forgets about her calling as a Hebrew. She violates every sacred way of living in her culture. Her power has actually made her very, very weak. She's off to a horrible start, but that's what's amazing about the book of Esther, you see. Because by the end, what do you see about Esther? She's brave. By the end, she's willing to sacrifice. By the end of the story, she becomes wise. She becomes a mediator. She becomes a savior. She stands tall as the redeemer over all her people. And you know what that means? God has not given up on Esther. God has not given up on Esther. Whether you're liberal or conservative, at this point in the book, everybody agrees Esther is a failure. In fact, some people look at this book and they say, you know, how can the Bible highlight people like this? And it's because the message of the Bible is this. 
God works through broken situations and contexts to demonstrate grace to people who don't deserve it, who don't ask for it, who run from it, who hide from it, who are not, who are not thankful when they've received it. God is not done with Esther. He's working in Esther to humble her, humble her through the pressures that she will experience, through her circumstances. Now, there's some of you, you've been through some incredible suffering in your day. Some of us here are working and laboring. We're paying a huge price for the approval that we need. Maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's children, your children. We're slaves to our children these days. And we've compromised our relationship with God. Don't despair. Don't despair. You know why? Because God may be preparing you. God, in your context, may be preparing you through your experiences, through your humbling, through your life, through your wisdom, through your failures, especially through your failures. They all matter. You don't have any regrets. Don't have any regrets. Don't have any complaints. Why? Because God may be preparing you to advocate for to empower people around you, just like he did with Esther. It took time, but God isn't done. The story isn't over. The last point here is how do you get your life back? How did Esther get her life back? How do you get your life back? We're obsessed with worldly power and influence and beauty. How do you get your life back to become a voice for other people? Look at Esther, this beautiful Esther. She hid her identity as a poor Jewish orphan, sacrificed her values to become the wife of the king. And as a result, for a while, she lost herself, right? For a while, she abandoned her connection with the real king, with the true king, God himself. I mean, isn't that, that's us, right? Hiding our identities as orphans so that we can act like a king, that's us. How do you get your life back? Behold the greater Esther, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greater Esther. He is the true Jew who hid his identity as a true king. That means he hid his beauty. Esther flaunted her beauty to hide her true identity. Jesus hid his true identity as a king, hid his true beauty. Why? To become an orphan, to become forsaken. And he upheld in the process every value to ultimately become the bridegroom to the poor. When you, when you behold the hidden beauty of Christ and when the experience of his love for you on the cross becomes palpable, becomes real to you, this is the key to being healed of our weakness, to be healed of our ugliness, to be healed of our unworthiness. Jesus Christ, he's the greater Esther the most beautiful person that ever lived, the most powerful, richest, kingliest person that ever walked the earth, the most beautiful person ever. He had all the honor, all the glory, all the power, all kingliness bestowed that you could bestow on a person, and he earned it. He earned this kingliness, and yet he was so secure he didn't have to flaunt it. He hid it. He tucked it in. Jesus Christ had God's love. Jesus Christ had Earn God's acceptance. In Mark chapter 1, he's being baptized. What happened? The heavens opened up. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. 
And a voice from heaven called out, this is my son whom I love. You know what God is saying there? That's God saying, look at my son. Look at his beauty. Look at how beautiful he is. He's adoring his son. He's doting on his son. You know what happens next? Right after that, he's thrown into the wilderness. The next chapter, the very next passage, he's in the wilderness. For 40 days, he goes without food, and he's suffering. That's all he does. This is my son whom I love. Immediately after, he's in suffering. That's how you know that suffering doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Because look at Jesus. He's in suffering. God loves him, and he's thrown into suffering. And from that point on, all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross until the next crown he wears is on the cross. He wears a crown of thorns. That's our king. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 to 3, we read that he had no beauty or majesty that attracted us to him. He was rejected by man. In other words, Jesus Christ, the beautiful, became the ignored, became the unnoticeable, became hidden. And he was rejected on the cross so that we who are unacceptable in sin, we who are broken in sin, we could become whole, we can become acceptable, and we can become acceptable to God. If, you know, if you're listening to worldly kings, and you're selling out, how do you heal? How do you become free of that? In the end, if you're listening to worldly kings and you're selling out, in the end, you're still going to feel like an exile because you're never going to know where you stand. There's never going to be a point in time when you're absolutely going to be certain where you stand, even in the world. And so when periods of suffering come, you know what happens? You start to feel as though God is absent from your life, distant from you. Because our sin is greater than we could ever imagine it's easy to doubt God's presence. But think about this. Would you ever doubt that God loved his son? I mean, it's explicit here. God, lo- you would never doubt that God loves his own son. And what happens to his son? He's thrown into suffering. Jesus Christ is thrown into suffering, a world of suffering. The cross, ultimate suffering. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ is sent to be rejected by man and ultimately by God. Why? He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for us. Jesus Christ was completely cut off from the king so you could have the presence of the king. Jesus Christ on the cross lost the Father's presence so that in suffering, even in suffering, you can trust that you have his presence. On the cross, Jesus Christ, he calls out, He cries out, I am forsaken. You know what that means? What he's saying is now the presence of God is really absent from me. Now the presence of God has really departed from me. Now God has really become silent from me. God is truly absent, hidden from me. Why? So that he can be present with you. So he can be present with you. Jesus Christ was completely disowned. He became an orphan. Why? So you could belong to God. You could be owned by God. Behold the beauty of Christ. Behold the love of Christ. He's the perfect Esther, the greater Esther. He hid his identity as a king. He hid his wealth. He hid his power. He hid his glory. If you're a worldly king, if you're a worldly orphan trying to become a king, you're going to flaunt your wealth. You're going to flaunt your wealth because we're insecure, so we have to cover over that insecurity with our strength, any worldly strength that we've got, power and influence. But Jesus Christ, the true king, he hid his identity as a king. He didn't need to flaunt his wealth. 
he became poor. He was made ugly. Why? So that we could be declared, be declared beautiful. That's how you know that God is not done with you. Every time you look at the cross, what do you see? God is not done with you because he was done with Jesus. He rejected Jesus on the cross. He became the ugly one on the cross. Why? So he would never be done with you. That means that you are his masterpiece. You are the one that he's still working on. To this day, in your suffering, in your pride, in your complaints, in your regrets, think about it. God is not done with you. Every time you look at the cross, there's your proof. Because Jesus Christ said, it's done. He's not done with you. That's an amazing reality, an amazing truth. How do you apply this? A couple things real quick. First, stop looking to your resume. Stop looking to your appearance, your looks, your charisma, your skills, your talent to build your inner confidence because it's not. It's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to be enough. Like Esther, you're going to sell out to increase your options and your potential and your joy when in actuality those things are going to decrease your options and your potential and your joy. The Xerxes in your life are going to tell you you got to work hard. Undergo beauty treatments. This is how you got to be. That's what beauty treatments are, right? you got to look right. you got to sacrifice to look right, and then maybe we'll approve of you. That's going to give you an exhausting life. That is an exhausting life. We have a lot of exhausted people in this room today, don't we? You look exhausted. Hopefully not because of the sermon, all right? There are a lot of people who are in jobs today who, make, who just make them miserable because they feel like if I don't stay in this job, it's going to ruin everyone's expectations of me. I would have wasted all the time and the energy that I put into building this pedigree. You see that? There are lots of people in this room today who refuse to date very eligible people with good Christian character because of hang-ups over security, because of their hang-ups over appearance or status. You see what's happening? The most important life decisions that you're making right now are revolving around your fear or your pride. Do you really want to bank your life on those two things? Make decisions, the most important decisions in your life, around your fear or your pride. That's what's happening. You become a slave. And if that's you, the results are dissatisfaction, and we can end up lonely and empty. What's going to cure you of that inner emptiness? You're going to become guilty. What's going to cure you of that inner guilt? But remember this, God is not done. God is not done with you. Oh, he's patient, and he's kind, and he's going to make you into something great the more you connect to Christ, Jesus Christ. The more you connect to Jesus Christ, you know what happens? You become free of those expectations. So your weakness becomes strength. You become free of the tape measure. There's no measure. Christ is the measure, and he's been imputed. He's transferred that righteousness. The word righteousness can be synonymous with approval, the approval of God. That righteousness gets transferred to you. You are approved. You were worth it. Surely you were worth it. That's going to grow your love for Christ. That's going to grow your love for the cross. You know those songs when we sing about, may I ever love the cross? You ever think about what that means? That's what it means. You cling to the cross. Why? Because there is your worth. There is your significance. There is your love. There is the only beauty that you need. Remember, Esther was loved because she performed well, because she was already beautiful. But Jesus Christ loves you, not because you performed well. We're failures. We're like Esther. We're failures. 
Jesus Christ loves you in spite of your blemishes to make you beautiful. Look at the beauty of Christ. I mean, that is a kind Savior. That is a kind King. To the core, He is kind. To the core, He is beautiful. In other words, you've got to take off your beauty treatments and put on the only beauty treatment that will last. That is the righteousness of Jesus, imputed, transferred to us. We are clothed not in fine linens, worldly garments. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have been cleansed of our sin. He has made us whole, radiant and beautiful as a bride. You know, in Revelation 21, the author, John, the author, writes, Then I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven. And then what does he say? Like a bride dressed beautifully like a woman who has been dressed beautifully as a bride. He's talking about the church. He's saying, that's you. In our brokenness, in spite of our weakness and failures and flaws and ugliness, Christ has clothed you with his righteousness, and at the end, one thing remains, and that is the church standing beautifully as Jesus' bride, waiting for his bridegroom. Let go of your resume. Let go of your looks. You know why? I'm going to tell you this is the second reason, second way that we can apply this. Think about your looks before you let it go. Think about your looks. Think about your skills. Think about your talents. You know why, you know why when you cling to these things, it, it leads to greater insecurity? You never know why you stand. You know why? It's because you never did anything to earn those things in the first place. You were born the way you look. So to cling to that, it's not going to be enough for you. It's not going to feel like enough for you. Your intelligence... Most of your raw athletic ability or intelligence, anything that you could boast about, most of those things you did not earn in the first place. You might have honed it, you might have prepared it, but you did not earn it. God gave those things to you along with a host of all other gifts and talents. You know what that means? You've got to stop complaining about your face. You've got to stop complaining about your body. God gave it to you along with a host of many other gifts, many other talents, many other skills. When the gospel takes hold, You will desire to use your gifts in bold ways for the kingdom of God. That's what Esther ended up doing. That's called repentance, to turn from one way of using these things and saying, you know what, now I see why I'm here. You may not know the real reason why you're here, but you'll say, now I know at least what God desires of me. If you pursue worldly beauty, you're going to become very deeply self-absorbed When you're captivated by the beauty of Christ, you know what you see? That the beauty of Christ is not in him worshiping himself. He never worshiped himself. He hid himself, right? It was him sacrificing himself. That's what you get drawn to. That's what makes him so beautiful. You start to develop a heart for broken people in the world. You you start to want to use your gifts. You don't complain. Friends, if you put me in a lineup, let's be honest here, okay? If you put me in a lineup of 10 other men recently graduated from seminary, okay, I can guarantee you, you will not choose the dorky-looking Asian with the poor Asian pedigree, right, and the overzealous haircut. You're going to choose him last, I guarantee you, all right? You're going to choose me last. Your calling is what qualifies you. Your calling is what qualifies you. Thirdly, when you suffer, some people, when they suffer, they get uglier. You know, they're great when things are going well, but as soon as trouble hits, they get uglier. 
They become bitter. They become reclusive. They blame other people. They complain constantly. They justify themselves all the time. That's never pretty. Never pretty. There's not a single person who looks at that and says, wow, beautiful. Nobody does that, right? But for a Christian, your suffering purifies you. You know why? Look at Christ. He is the most beautiful person that ever lived. And in his suffering, doesn't he become more beautiful? It's because of his suffering. You look at him, you say, he is even more beautiful. I would already acknowledge him as king for who he is. And yet because of his kindness, you see elements of Christ, dimensions of Jesus that you could be sure of because of his suffering. The suffering purifies you. Look at Esther. She didn't have to suffer. We're going to go into the story more. If you've never read this book, don't feel lost. We're going to go into this book a lot more. But later on, she endures a tremendous amount of suffering. She doesn't, choose, she doesn't have to. She could have abandoned her calling, her, her calling as a Hebrew woman. She could have abandoned that. But she abandons her beauty. She abandons her comforts. She abandons what could be. And she chooses to suffer. And so Esther is celebrated because her suffering made her beautiful. The fear is gone. The pretenses are gone. The snobbishness is gone. What's left with her is her humility, her compassion, her courage, her voice. And she abandons all social mores. She becomes the true prototypical feminist in the end. Thousands of years later, we're still studying Esther. Not because she's this beautiful woman, but because of her suffering made her beautiful. Look at Christ. His suffering makes him look even more beautiful. And your suffering, the mark of your suffering. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's this kind of obscure verse that says, in the end, we're all going to be like the man from heaven. If you think about it, basically, we're all going to be, we're all going to look like Jesus in a sense. Now, if you think about it, when Jesus appeared before his disciples at the resurrection, they didn't recognize him. Because his body, everything was renewed, glorified, beautiful. They couldn't recognize him. You know how they recognized him? The scars. He said, Thomas, the scars. Recognize me. Your suffering, the marks of your suffering will remain. And it will make you beautiful. Lastly, very quick point. Esther needed both Mordecai and Xerxes in her life. Community. Deeply root yourselves in community. Okay, that's a very practical application, right? Esther needed Xerxes because if there was no Xerxes, the idols would not have been apparent to her. The idols, her obsession with her beauty, her obsession with her pride, none of those things would have been revealed had there not been a Xerxes. Every one of you have Xerxes in your life. We're all in the workplace we're all out there. If you're the type of person, I'm telling you right now, if you're the type of person who just retreats from uh, your workplace, retreats from people around you who are not involved in the church because you believe that you're calling, you just want to be a part of a Christian enclave in the church, first of all, that's not what Metro Presbyterian Church is about. Our vision is to plug into the city. That's why we're planted here in the city. It's more than symbolic. We are called to be a part of leaders in our community. And so that means plug in, get in there. Make friends that are part of Xerxes, right? But you don't over-adapt. If you under-adapt, then you're not living out your Christian calling. If you over-adapt, then you're not living out your Christian calling. But what you need is a Mordecai in your life. You need Mordecais in your lives. People that you can draw near 
who remind you of your calling, that's the word. Who remind you of who you are, that's in the word. That's why we come to worship every week. But you need Mordecai's in your life that are going to draw out your sense of calling, uh, remind you of who you are in Christ. Rich community, not just Christian communities, rich communities, but you've got to plug into community groups too, right? You've got to plug into your church community as well. Again, don't over-adapt, then you're going to end up like Esther in chapter 1 and 2. Don't under-adapt, but live with a sense of purpose. Live with a sense of calling. You know, the person with the sense of purpose and calling was Mordecai so far in chapter 2, right? Live with a sense of calling. Live with purpose. See beyond just your apparent context. See through it and realize why God has really put you there. And then, then, once you've abandoned the worldly call to be like Xerxes, to be like the worldly Esthers, to, once you abandon your calling, your, your, your obsession with beauty and wealth and power, and see your suffering, once you start to see that, then you're going to live a big life. Then you rise to live a very big life. That's when you experience real power and the real beauty of Christ. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Closing.